Section 22 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 8 For What Men Died. Chapters 1 to 4. Chapter 1. In this book I have written in a blunt way some episodes of the war as I observed them and gained first-hand knowledge of them in their daily traffic. I have not painted the picture blacker than it was, nor selected gruesome morsels and joined them together to make a jigsaw puzzle for ghoulish delight. Unlike Henri Barbousse, who, in his dreadful book Le Feu, gave the unrelieved blackness of this human drama, I have here, and in other books, shown the light as well as the shade in which our men lived, the gaiety as well as the fear they had, the exultation as well as the agony of battle the spiritual ardor of boys, as well as the brutality of the task that was theirs. I have tried to set down as many aspects of the war's psychology as I could find in my remembrance of these years, without exaggeration or false emphasis, so that out of their confusion, even out of their contradiction, the real truth of the adventure might be seen as it touched the souls of men. Yet, when one strives to sum up the evidence and reach definite conclusions about the motives which led men of the warring nations to kill one another year after year in those fields of slaughter, the ideals for which so many millions of men laid down their lives, and the effect of those years of carnage upon the philosophy of this present world of men, there is no clear line of thought or conviction. It is difficult, at least, to forecast the changes that will be produced by this experience in the social structure of civilized peoples, and in their relations to one another, though it is certain, even now, that out of the passion of the war a new era in the world's history is being born. The ideas of vast masses of people have been revolutionized by the thoughts that were stirred up in them during those years of intense suffering. No system of government designed by men, afraid of the new ideas, will have power to kill them, though they may throttle them for a time. For good or ill, I know not which, the ideas germinated in trenches and dugouts, in towns under shell-fire or bomb-fire, in hearts stricken by personal tragedy or world agony, will prevail over the old order which dominated the nations of Europe, and the old philosophy of political and social governance will be challenged and perhaps overthrown. If the new ideas are thwarted, by reactionary rulers endeavoring to jerk the world back to its old-fashioned discipline under their authority, there will be anarchy reaching to the heights of terror in more countries than those where anarchy now prevails. If by fear or by wisdom the new ideas are allowed to gain their ground gradually, a revolution will be accomplished without anarchy. But in any case, for good or ill, a revolution will happen. It has happened in the sense that already there is no resemblance between this Europe after the war and that Europe before the war in the mental attitude of the masses toward the problems of life. In every country there are individuals, men and women, who are going about as though what had happened had made no difference, and as though after a period of restlessness the people will settle down to the old style of things. They are merely sleepwalkers. There are others who see clearly enough that they cannot govern or dupe the people with old spell-words, and they are struggling desperately to think out new words which may help them to regain their power over simple minds. The old gangs are organizing a new system of defense, 
building a new kind of Hindenburg line behind which they are dumping their political ammunition. But their Hindenburg line is not impregnable. The angry murmur of the mob, highly organized, disciplined, passionate, trained to fight, is already approaching the outer bastions. In Russia the mob is in possession, wiping the blood out of their eyes after the nightmare of anarchy encompassed by forces of the old regime, and not knowing yet whether its victory is won or how to shape the new order that must follow chaos. In Germany there is only the psychology of stunned people, broken for a time in body and spirit, after stupendous efforts and bloody losses which led to ruin and the complete destruction of their old pride, philosophy, and power. The revolution that has happened there is strange and rather pitiful. It was not caused by the willpower of the people, but by a cessation of willpower. They did not overthrow their ruling dynasty, their tyrants. The tyrants fled, and the people were not angry, nor sorry, nor fierce, nor glad. They were stupefied. Members of the old order joined hands with those of the people's parties, out to evolve a republic with new ideals based upon the people's will and inspired by the people's passion. The Germans, after the armistice and after peace, had no passion, as they had no will. They were in a state of coma. The knockout blow had happened to them, and they were incapable of action. They just ceased from action. They had been betrayed to this ruin by their military and political rulers, but they had not vitality enough to demand vengeance on those men. The extent of their ruin was so great that it annihilated anger, political passion, pride, all emotion except that of despair. How could they save something out of the remnants of power that had been theirs? How could they keep alive, feed their women and children, pay their monstrous debts? They had lost their faith as well as their war. Nothing that they had believed was true. They had believed in their invincible armies, and the armies had bled to death and broken. They had believed in the supreme military genius of their warlords, and the warlords, blunderers as well as criminals, had led them to the abyss and dropped them over. They had believed in the divine mission of the German people as a civilizing force, and now they were despised by all other peoples as a brutal and barbarous race, in spite of German music, German folk songs, German art, German sentiment. They had been abandoned by God, by the protecting hand of the Altes Gutes Deutsches Gottes, to whom they had prayed for comfort and help in those years of war, in Protestant churches and Catholic churches, with deep piety and childlike faith. What sins had they done that they should be abandoned by God? The invasion of Belgium? That, they argued, was a tragic necessity. Atrocities? Those were, they believed, the inventions of their enemies. There had been stern things done, terrible things, but according to the laws of war. Anctihir had been shot. That was war. Hostages had been shot. It was to save German lives from slaughter by civilians. Individual brutalities, yes. There were brutes in all armies. The U-boat war? It was, said the German patriot, to break a blockade that was starving millions of German children to slow death, condemning millions to consumption, rickets, all manner of disease. Nurse Cavell? She pleaded guilty to a crime that was punishable as she knew by death. She was a brave woman who took her risk open-eyed, and was judged according to the justice of war, which is very cruel. 
poison gas why not said german soldiers when to be gassed was less terrible than to be blown to bits by high explosives they had been the first to use that new method of destruction as the english were the first to use tanks terrible also in their destructiveness germany was guilty of this war had provoked it against peaceful peoples no a thousand times no they had been said the troubled soul of germany encompassed with enemies they had plotted to close her in russia was a huge menace france had entered into alliance with russia and was waiting her chance to grab an alsace lorraine italy was ready for betrayal england hated the power of germany and was in secret alliance with france and russia germany had struck to save herself it was a war of self-defense to save the fatherland the german people still clung desperately to those ideas after the armistice as i found in cologne and other towns and as friends of mine who had visited berlin told me after peace was signed the germans refused to believe in accusations of atrocity they knew that some of these stories had been faked by hostile propaganda and knowing that as we know they thought all were false they said lies 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 and made countercharges against the russians and poles they could not bring themselves to believe that their sons and brothers had been more brutal than the laws of war allow and what brutality they had done was imposed upon them by ruthless discipline but they deplored the war and the common people ex-soldiers and civilians cursed the rich and governing classes who had made profit out of it and continued it when they might have made peace with honor that was their accusation against their leaders that and the ruthless bloody way in which their men had been hurled into the furnace on a gambler's chance of victory while they were duped by faked promises of victory when not put upon their defense by accusations against the whole fatherland the german people as far as i could tell by talking with a few of them and by those letters which fell into our hands revolted in spirit against the monstrous futility and idiocy of the war and were convinced in their souls that its origin lay in the greed and pride of the governing classes of all nations who would use men's bodies as counters in a devil's game that view was expressed in the signboards put above the parapet we're all fools let's all go home and in that letter by the women who wrote for the poor here it is terrible and yet the rich the gilded ones the bloated aristocrats gobble up everything in front of our very eyes all soldiers friend and foe ought to throw down their weapons and go on strike so that this war which enslaves the people more than ever may cease it is that view terrible in its simplicity which may cause a more passionate revolution in germany when the people awaken from their stupor it was that view which led to the russian revolution and to bolshevism it is the suspicion which is creeping into the brains of british working men and making them threaten to strike against any adventure of war like that in russia which seems to them unless proved otherwise on behalf of the gilded ones and for the enslavement of the peoples not to face that truth is to deny the passionate convictions of masses of men in europe that is one key to the heart of the revolutionary movement which is surging beneath the surface of our european state it is the belief of many brooding minds that almost as great as the direct guilt of the german warlords was the guilt of the whole political society of europe whose secret diplomacy unrevealed to the peoples was based upon hatred and fear and rivalry in play for imperial power and the world's markets as common folk play dominoes for penny points 
and risking the lives of common folk in a gamble for enormous stakes of territory imperial prestige and personal vanity of politicians the vast private gain of trusts and profiteers to keep the living counters quiet to make them jump into the pool of their own free will at the word go the statesmen diplomats trusts and profiteers debauch the name of patriotism raise the watchword of liberty and play upon the ignorance of the mob easily skillfully by inciting them to race hatred by inflaming the brute passion in them and by concocting a terrible mixture of false idealism and self-interest so that simple minds quick to respond to sentiment as well as those quick to hear the call of the beast rally shoulder to shoulder and march to the battlegrounds under the spell of that potion some go with a noble sense of sacrifice some with bloodlust in their hearts most with the herd instinct following the lead little knowing that they are but the pawns of a game which is being played behind closed doors by the great gamblers in the courts and foreign offices and committee rooms and counting houses of the political casinos in europe i have heard the expression of this view from soldiers during the war and since the war at street corners and tram cars and in conversations with railway men mechanics policemen and others who were soldiers a year ago or stay-at-homes thinking hard over the meaning of the war i am certain that millions of men are thinking these things because i found the track of those common thoughts crude simple dangerous among canadian soldiers crossing the atlantic in canadian towns and in the united states as i had begun to see the trail of them far back in the early days of the war when i moved among french soldiers belgian soldiers and our own men my own belief is not so simple as that i do not divorce all peoples from their governments as victims of a subtle tyranny devised by statesmen and diplomats of diabolical cunning and by financial magnates ready to exploit human life for greater gains i see the evil which led to the crime of the war and to the crimes of the peace with deep-spread roots to the very foundation of human society the fear of statesmen upon which all international relations were based was in the hearts of peoples france was afraid of germany and screwed up her military service her war preparations to the limit of national endurance the majority of the people of france accepting the burden as inevitable and right because of her fear of germany france made her alliance with russian tsardom her entente cordiale with imperial england and the french people poured their money into russian loans as a life insurance against the german menace french statesmen knew that their diplomacy was supported by the majority of the people by their ignorance as well as by their knowledge so it was in germany the spell words of the german warlords expressed the popular sentiment of the german people which was largely influenced by the fear of russia in alliance with france by fear and envy of the british empire and england's sea power and by the faith that germany must break through that hostile combination at all costs in order to fulfill the high destiny which was marked out for her as she thought by the genius and industry of her people the greed of the bloated aristocrats was only on a bigger scale than the greed of the small shopkeepers the desire to capture new markets belonged not only to statesmen but to commercial travelers the german peasant believed as much in the might of the german armies as hindenburg and ludendorff the brutality of german generals was not worse than that of unteroffizier or the foreman of works 
In England there was no traditional hatred of Germany, but for some years distrust and suspicions, which had been vented in the newspapers with taunts and challenges, stinging the pride of Germans and playing into the hands of the Junker caste. Our war psychology was different from that of our allies because of our island position and our faith in sea power, which had made us immune from the fear of invasion. It took some time to awaken the people to a sense of real peril and a personal menace to their hearths and homes. To the very end masses of English folk believed that we were fighting for the rescue of other people, Belgian, French, Serbian, Romanian, and not for the continuance of our imperial power. The official propaganda, the words and actions of British statesmen, did actually express the conscious and subconscious psychology of the multitude. The call to the old watchwords of national pride and imperial might thrilled the soul of a people of proud tradition in sea battles and land battles. Appeals for the rescue of the little nations struck old chords of chivalry and sentiment though with a strange lack of logic and sincerity irish demand for self-government was unheeded base passions as well as noble instincts were stirred easily greedy was the appetite of the mob for atrocity tales the more revolting they were the quicker they were swallowed the foul absurdity of the corpse factory was not rejected any more than the tale of the crucified canadian disproved by our own g h q or the cutting off of children's hands and women's breasts for which i could find no evidence from the only british ambulances working in the districts where such horrors were reported spy mania flourished in mean streets german music was banned in english drawing-rooms preachers and professors denied any quality of virtue or genius to german poets philosophers scientists or scholars a critical weighing of evidence was regarded as pro-germanism and lack of patriotism truth was delivered bound to passion hatred at home inspired largely by feminine hysteria and official propaganda reached such heights that when fighting men came back on leave their refusal to say much against their enemy their straightforward assertions that fritz was not so black as he was painted that he fought bravely died gamely and in the prison camps was well-mannered decent industrious good-natured were heard with shocked silence by mothers and sisters who could only excuse this absence of hate on the score of war weariness chapter two the people of all countries were deeply involved in the general blood guiltiness of europe they made no passionate appeal in the name of christ or in the name of humanity for the cessation of the slaughter of boys and the suicide of nations and for a reconciliation of peoples upon terms of some more reasonable argument than that of high explosives peace proposals from the pope from germany from austria were rejected with fierce denunciation most passionate scorn as peace plots and peace traps not without the terrible logic of the vicious circle because indeed there was no sincerity of renunciation in some of those offers of peace and the powers hostile to us were simply trying our strength and our weakness in order to make their own kind of peace which should be that of conquest the gamblers playing the game of poker with crowns and armies as their stakes were upheld generally by the peoples who would not abate one point of pride 
one fraction of hate one claim of vengeance though all europe should fail in ruin and the last legions of boys be massacred there was no call from people to people across the frontiers of hostility let us end this homicidal mania let us get back to sanity and save our younger sons let us hand over to justice those who will continue the slaughter of our youth there was no forgiveness no generous instinct no large-hearted common sense in any combatant nation of europe like wolves they had their teeth in one another's throats and would not let go though all bloody and exhausted until one should fall at the last gasp to be mangled by the others yet in each nation even in germany there were men and women who saw the folly of the war and the crime of it and desired to end it by some act of renunciation and repentance and by some uplifting of the people's spirit to vault the frontiers of hatred and the barbed wire which hedged in patriotism some of them were put in prison most of them saw the impossibility of counteracting the forces of insanity which had made the world mad and kept silent hiding their thoughts and brooding over them the leaders of the nations continued to use mob passion as their argument and justification excited it anew when its fires burned low focused it upon definite objectives and gave it a sense of righteousness by the high-sounding watchwords of liberty justice honor and retribution each side proclaimed christ as its captain and invoked the blessing and aid of the god of christendom though germans were allied with turks and france was full of black and yellow men the german people did not try to avert their ruin by denouncing the criminal acts of their warlords nor by deploring the cruelties they had committed allies did not help them to do so because of their lust for bloody vengeance and their desire for the spoils of victory the people shared the blame of their rulers because they were not nobler than their rulers they cannot now plead ignorance or betrayal by false ideals which dupe them because character does not depend on knowledge and it was the character of european peoples which failed in the crisis of the world's fate so that they followed the call back of the beast in the jungle rather than the voice of the crucified one whom they pretended to adore chapter three the character of european peoples failed in common sense and in christian charity it did not fail in courage to endure great agonies to suffer death largely to be obedient to the tradition of patriotism and to the stoic spirit of old fighting races in courage i do not think there was much difference between the chief combatants the germans as a race were wonderfully brave until their spirit was broken by the sure knowledge of defeat and by lack of food many times through all those years they marched shoulder to shoulder obedient to discipline to certain death as i saw them on the somme like martyrs they marched for their fatherland inspired by the spirit of the german race as it had entered their souls by the memory of old german songs old heroic ballads their german home life their german women their love of little old towns on hillsides or in valleys by all the meaning to them of that word germany which is like the name of england to us who is fool enough to think otherwise and fought often a thousand times to the death as i saw their bodies heaped in the fields of the somme and round their pillboxes in flanders and in the last phase of the war behind the hindenburg line round their broken batteries on the way to mons and la Quito. 
the german people endured years of semi-starvation and a drain of blood greater than any other fighting people two million dead before they lost all vitality hope and pride and made their abject surrender at the beginning they were out for conquest inspired by arrogance and pride before the end they had fought desperately to defend the fatherland from the doom which cast its black shadow on them as it drew near they were brave those germans whatever the brutality of individual men and the cold-blooded cruelty of their commanders the courage of france is to me like an old heroic song stirring the heart it was medieval in its complete adherence to the faith of valor and its spirit of sacrifice for la patrie if patriotism were enough as the gospel of life nurse cavell did not think so france as a nation was perfect in that faith her people had no doubt as to their duty it was to defend their sacred soil from the enemy which had invaded it it was to hurl the brutes back from the fair fields they had ravaged and despoiled it was to liberate their brothers and sisters from the outrageous tyranny of the german yoke in the captured country it was to seek vengeance for bloody foul and abominable deeds in the first days of the war france was struck by heavy blows which sent her armies reeling back in retreat but before the first battle of the marne when her peril was greatest when paris seemed doomed the spirit of the french soldiers rose to a supreme act of faith which was fulfilled when foch attacked in the centre when maroni struck on the enemy's flank and hundreds of thousands of young frenchmen hurled themselves reckless of life upon the monster which faltered and then fled behind the shelter of the inn with bloodshot eyes and parched throats and swollen tongues blind with sweat and blood mad with the heat and fury of attack the french soldiers fought through that first battle of the marne and saved france from defeat and despair after that year after year they flung themselves against the german defense and died in heaps or held their lines as at verdun against colossal onslaught until the dead lay in masses but the living said they shall not pass and kept their word the people of france above all the women of france behind the lines were the equals of the fighting men in valor they fought with despair through many black months and did not yield they did the work of their men in the fields and knew that many of them the sons or brothers or lovers or husbands would never return for the harvest time but did not cry to have them back until the enemy should be thrust out of france behind the german line under german rule the french people prisoners in their own land suffered most in spirit but were proud and patient in endurance why don't your people give in asked a german officer of a woman in nesle france is bleeding to death we shall go on for two years or three years or four or five and in the end we shall smash you said the woman who told me this the german officer stared at her and said you people are wonderful yes they were wonderful the french and their hatred of the germans their desire for vengeance complete and terrible at all cost of life even though france should bleed to death and die after victory is to be understood in the heights and depths of its hatred and in the passion of its love for france and liberty when i think of france i am tempted to see no greater thing than such patriotism as that to justify the gospel of hate against such an enemy to uphold vengeance as a sweet virtue yet 
If I did so, I should deny the truth that has been revealed to many men and women by the agony of the war, that if civilization may continue, patriotism is not enough, that international hatred will produce other wars worse than this, in which civilization will be submerged, and that vengeance, even for dreadful crimes, cannot be taken of a nation without punishing the innocent more than the guilty, so that out of its cruelty and injustice new fires of hatred are lighted. The demand for vengeance passes to the other side, and the devil finds another vicious circle in which to trap the souls of men and catch them all alive-o. To deny that would also be a denial of the faith with which millions of young Frenchmen rushed to the colors in the first days of the war. It was they who said, This is a war to end war. They told me so. It was they who said, German militarism must be killed so that all militarism shall be abolished. This is a war for liberty. So soldiers of France spoke to me on a night when Paris was mobilized and the tragedy began. It is a Frenchman, Henri Barbus, who, in spite of the German invasion, the outrages against his people, the agony of France, has the courage to say that all peoples in Europe were involved in the guilt of that war because of their adherence to that old barbaric creed of brute force and the superstitious servitude of their souls to symbols of national pride based upon military tradition. He even denounces the salute to the flag, instinctive and sacred in the heart of every Frenchman, as a fetish worship in which the narrow bigotry of national arrogance is raised above the rights of the common masses of men. He draws no distinction between a war of defense and a war of aggression, because attack is the best means of defense, and all peoples who go to war dupe themselves into the belief that they do so in defense of their liberties and rights and power and property. Germany attacked France first, because she was ready first and sure of her strength. France would have attacked Germany first to get back Alsace-Lorraine to wipe out 1870 if she also had been ready and sure of her strength. The political philosophy on both sides of the Rhine was the same. It was based on military power and rivalry of secret alliances and imperial ambitions. The large-hearted internationalism of Jean Jarre, who, with all his limitations, was a great Frenchman, patriot and idealist, had failed among his own people and in Germany, and the assassin's bullet was his reward for the adventure of his soul to lift civilization above the level of the old jungle law and to save France from the massacre which happened. In war, France was wonderful, most heroic in sacrifice, most splendid in valor. In her dictated peace, which was ours also, her leaders were betrayed by the very evil which millions of young Frenchmen had gone out to kill at the sacrifice of their own lives. Militarism was exalted in France above the ruins of German militarism. It was the peace of vengeance which punished the innocent more than the guilty, the babe at the breast more than the Junker in his Schloss, the poor working woman more than the warlord, the peasant who had been driven to the shambles more than Sixt von Arnim or Ruprecht of Bavaria or Ludendorff or Hindenburg. It is a peace that can only be maintained by power of artillery and by the conscription of every French boy who shall be trained for the next war defense, twenty years hence, thirty years hence, when Germany is strong again, stronger than France because of her population, stronger than enormously than France 
in relative numbers of able-bodied men than in August 1914. So if that philosophy continue, and I do not think it will, the old fear will be re-established, the old burdens of armament will be piled up anew, the people of France will be weighed down as before under a military regime, stifling their liberty of thought and action, wasting the best years of their boyhood in barracks, seeking protective alliances, buying allies at great cost, establishing the old spy system, the old diplomacy, the old squalid ways of international politics, based as before on fear and force. Marshal Foch was a fine soldier. Clemenceau, was a strong minister of war. There was no man great enough in France to see beyond the passing triumph of military victory and by supreme generosity of soul to lift their enemy out of the dirt of their despair so that the new German Republic should arise from the ruins of the Empire, remorseful of their deeds in France and Belgium, with all their rage directed against their ancient tyranny and with a newborn spirit of democratic liberty reaching across the old frontiers is that the foolish dream of the sentimentalist no no more than that for the german people after their agony were ready to respond to generous dealing pitiful in their need of it and there is enough sentiment in german hearts the most sentimental people in europe to rise with a surge of emotion to a new gospel of atonement if their old enemies had offered a chance of grace France has not won the war by her terms of peace, nor safeguarded her frontiers for more than a few uncertain years. By harking back to the old philosophy of militarism, she has re-established peril amid a people drained of blood and deeply in debt. Her support of reactionary forces in Russia is to establish a government which will guarantee the interest on French loans and organize a new military regime in alliance with France and England. Meanwhile, France looks to the United States and British people to protect her from the next war, when Germany shall be strong again. She is playing the militarist role without the strength to sustain it. Chapter 4 What of England? Looking back at the immense effort of the British people in the war, our high sum of sacrifice in blood and treasure, and the patient courage of our fighting men, the world must, and does indeed, acknowledge that the old stoic virtue of our race was called out by this supreme challenge, and stood the strain. The traditions of a thousand years of history, filled with war and travail and adventure, by which old fighting races had blended with different strains of blood and temper, Roman, Celtic, Saxon, Danish, Norman, survived in the fiber of our modern youth, country-bred or city-bred, in spite of the weakening influences of slumdom, vicious environment, ill-nourishment, clerkship, and sedentary life. The Londoner was a good soldier. The Liverpools and Manchesters were hard and tough in attack and defense. The South Country battalions of Devons and Dorsets, Sussex and Somersets, were not behindhand in ways of death. The Scots had not lost their fire and passion, but were terrible in their onslaught. The Irish battalions, with recruiting cut off at the base, fought with their old gallantry until there were few to answer the last roll-call. The Welsh dragon encircled Mehmet's wood, devoured the cockchafers on Pilgrim Ridge, and were hard on the trail of the Black Eagle in the last offensive. The Australians and Canadians had all the British quality of courage and the benefit of a harder physique, 
gained by outdoor life and unweakened ancestry. In the mass, apart from neurotic types here and there among officers and men, the stock was true and strong. The spirit of a seafaring race, which has the salt in its blood from Land's End to John O'Goats and back again to Wapping, had not been destroyed, but answered the ruffle of Drake's drum, and with simplicity and gravity in Royal Navy and in Merchant Marine, swept the highways of the seas, hunted worse monsters than any fabulous creatures of the deep, and shirked no dread adventure in the storms and darkness of a spacious hell. The men who went to Zeebrugge were the true sons of those who fought the Spanish Armada and singed the King of Spain's beard in Cadiz harbor. The victors of the Jutland battle were better men than Nelson's, the scourings of the prisons and the sweepings of the press gang, and not less brave in frightful hours. Without the service of the British seamen, the war would have been lost for France and Italy and Belgium and all of us. The flower of our youth went out to France and Flanders, to Egypt, Palestine, Gallipoli, Mesopotamia, and Saloniki, and was a fine flower of gallant boyhood, clean, for the most part eager, not brutal, except by intensive training, simple in minds and hearts, chivalrous in instinct, without hatred, adventurous, laughter-loving, and dutiful. That is God's truth. In spite of the vice-rotted, criminal, degenerate, and brutal fellows in many battalions, as in all crowds of men. In millions of words during the years of war, I recorded the bravery of our troops on the Western Front, their patience, their cheerfulness, suffering, and agony, yet with all those words describing day by day the incidents of their life in war, I did not exaggerate the splendor of their stoic spirit or the measure of their sacrifice. The heroes of mythology were but paltry figures compared with those who, in the great war, went forward to the roaring devils of modern gunfire, dwelt amid high explosives more dreadful than dragons, breathed in the fumes of poison gas more foul than the breath of Medusa, watched and slept above mine craters which upheaved the hellfire of Pluto, and defied thunderbolts more certain in death-dealing blows than those of Jove. Something there was in the spirit of our men which led them to endure these things without revolt, ideals higher than the selfish motives of life. They did not fight for greed or glory, not for conquest, nor for vengeance. Hatred was not the inspiration of the mass of them, for I am certain that except in hours when men see red, there was no direct hatred of the men in the opposite trenches, but on the other hand, a queer sense of fellow-feeling a humorous sympathy for our old Fritz, who was in the same bloody mess as themselves. Our generals, it is true, hated the Germans. I should like one week in Cologne, one of them told me, before there seemed ever a chance of getting there, and I would let my men loose in the streets and turn a blind eye to anything they liked to do. Some of our officers were inspired by a bitter, unrelenting hate. If I had a thousand Germans in a row, one of them said to me, I would cut all their throats and enjoy the job. But that was not the mentality of the men in the ranks, except those who were murderers by nature and pleasure. They gave their cigarettes to prisoners, and filled their water bottles, and chatted in a friendly way with any German who spoke a little English, as I have seen them time and time again on days of battle, in the fields of battle. There are exceptions to this treatment. But even the Australians and the Scots, who were most fierce in battle, 
giving no quarter sometimes, treated their prisoners with humanity when they were bundled back. Hatred was not the motive which made our men endure all things. It was rather, as I have said, a refusal in their souls to be beaten in manhood by all the devils of war, by all its terrors, or by its beastliness, and at the back of all the thought that the old country was up against it, and that they were there to avert the evil. Young soldiers of ours, not only of officer rank, but of other ranks, as they were called, were inspired at the beginning, and some of them to the end, with a simple boyish idealism. They saw no other causes of war than German brutality. The enemy to them was the monster who had to be destroyed lest the world and its beauty should perish, and that was true so long as the individual German, who loathed the war, obeyed the discipline of the herd leaders and did not revolt against the natural laws which, when the war was once started, bade him die in defense of his own fatherland. Many of those boys of ours made a dedication of their lives upon the altar of sacrifice, believing that by this service and this sacrifice they would help the victory of civilization over barbarism, and of Christian morality over the devil's law. They believed that they were fighting to dethrone militarism, to ensure the happiness and liberties of civilized peoples, and were sure of the gratitude of their nation, should they not have the fate to fall upon the field of honor, but to go home blind or helpless. I have read many letters from boys now dead, in which they express that faith. Do not grieve for me, wrote one of them, for I shall be proud to die for my country's sake. I am happy, wrote another, I quote the tenor of his letters, because though I hate war, I feel that this is the war to end war. We are the last victims of this way of argument. By smashing the German war machine, we shall prove for all time the criminal folly of militarism and junkerdom. There were young idealists like that, and they were to be envied for their faith, which they brought with them from public schools and from humble homes where they had read old books and heard old watchwords. I think, at the beginning of the war, there were many like that. But as it continued year after year, doubts crept in, dreadful suspicions of truth more complex than the old simplicity, a sense of revolt against sacrifice unequally shared, and devoted to a purpose which was not that for which they had been called to fight. They had been told that they were fighting for liberty, but their first lesson was the utter loss of individual liberty under discipline which made the private soldier no more than a number. They were ordered about like galley slaves, herded about like cattle, treated individually and in the mess with utter disregard of their comfort and well-being. Often, as I know, they were detrained at railheads in the wind and rain and by ghastly arrows of staff work kept waiting for their food until they were weak and famished. In the base camps, men of one battalion were drafted into other battalions where they lost old comrades and were unfamiliar with the speech and habits of a crowd belonging to different counties, the Sussex men going to a Manchester regiment, the Yorkshire men being drafted to a Surrey unit. By RTOs and AMLOs and camp commandments and town majors and staff, Puff's men were bullied and bundled about, not like human beings, but like dumb beasts and in a thousand ways injustice, petty tyranny, hard work, degrading punishments for trivial offenses, struck at their souls and made the name of personal liberty a mockery. From their own individuality they argued to broader issues. 
Was this war for liberty? Were the masses of men on either side fighting with free will as free men? Those Germans, were they not under discipline, each man of them forced to fight whether they liked it or not, compelled to go forward to sacrifice with machine guns behind them to shoot them down if they revolted against their slave drivers? What liberty had they to follow their conscience or their judgment? Theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die, like all soldiers in all armies. Was it not rather that the masses of men engaged in slaughter were serving the purpose of powers above them, rival powers, greedy for one another's markets, covetous of one another's wealth, and callous of the lives of humble men? Surely if leaders of the warring nations were put together for even a week in some place like Hooge, or the Hohenzollern Redoubt, afflicted by the usual harassing fire, poison gas, mine explosions, lice, rats, and the stench of rotting corpses, with the certainty of death or dismemberment at week end, they would settle the business and come to terms before the week was out. I heard that proposition put forward many times by young officers of ours, and as an argument against their own sacrifice they found it unanswerable. End of section 22